Welcome everybody to another episode of All Things Crime. I appreciate you being here and while you are here, definitely hit that subscribe button and the bell so you never miss an episode. I'm excited this morning to have Steve Connor. He is a retired homicide detective and cold case detective from Aurora Police Department in Colorado. So not only did he uh, live in one of the most beautiful areas in the entire world, but he also uh, uh, had the chance to help solve a lot of cold cases. So, Steve, welcome to the welcome to the uh, to the show. Thanks, great to be here. Yeah, uh, boy, how many uh, how many months have I been trying to get you on? <laughs> months or years? I think it's been about a year, almost on and off. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, especially as you were uh, wrapping up your time there with uh, Aurora PD, you were you were a busy man. Yeah, we had uh, tried a couple times and set up, you know, time to get together, and that always fell through as recent as last week. So it's good to finally connect. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, I'm trying to think of when we met. I'm th I'm thinking it was what four or five years ago. I, I was over there at uh, Aurora PD and demo in the MVAC, if I remember right. That's correct. Yes, you were. Yeah. That was, uh, I think that was when uh, I had actually gone and trained Thornton PD on their new system. And while I was there, I, I made sure to go around to the biggest, biggest PDs. So eventually I think we'll, we'll get Aurora PD and I'm back. But in the meantime, um, hopefully they will know that there's enough uh, agencies around them that have them that they can, they can always use one around there. Well, a lot of times they, they know Thornton and Rappel County have an MVAC, so if they, I don't know what their philosophy is because there's a lot of stuff going on right now internally, but um, if they need to, they usually go to Thornton or Rappel County to, to have that done, so. Yeah, and Douglas County has one too now. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Wasn't aware of that. So they're, uh, Colorado's getting there. Um, all right, so. Uh, the reason I, I was so excited to have you on is because uh, homicide detectives, I think, first of all, it, it usually takes a, a period of time before uh, any officer can actually work his way up to being a homicide detective. And so I, I think that would be really interesting to learn a little bit about your career path, what made you decide to... Uh, maybe go into not only police work, but also to become a detective. What made me uh, decide to go into police work was when I was 17, which was, you know, a couple years ago. <clears throat> anyway, um, I was watching this show called Adam 12, not the new one, but the old one. Um, and I thought, well, that'd be cool, you know, drive around all day, handling calls, meeting people. So that was probably the inspiration. Um, and then I went to a local police department and after watching a few episodes and told me, yeah, I'd like to join the police department. And they all kind of laughed at me um, because at the time they go, well, how old are you? I said 17 and they go, well, you have to be 21. I was really disappointed. It's like, I don't want to wait four years. They go, well, you know, there's always other <laughs> aspects you can look into. I said, well, like what, you know, I mean, well, you can join the military, get your experience there, and then you bring it out, and they'll give you veterans points to get hired on a police department. So I did. I uh, enlisted probably that week, um, 
but after just soon after I turned 18, I joined the Air Force, spent four years there. Got to see part of the world, got to see uh, Texas. That was a part that I didn't really care to see at that point, but Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, and I spent uh, 15 months in Turkey. And having that military experience behind me, I'm still thinking in the back of head, I want to be a police officer. And I had people saying, you should stay in the Air Force. It's got all these benefits. And after they sent me to Turkey, I said, no way am I staying in the Air Force. <laughs> so after I got out, I Turkey, spent, what was that like? Uh, it, yeah, it was um, it was interesting. It was a, an, a learning experience. I don't want to give that up, but um, where I was stationed, I wouldn't want to go back. And there was a lot of people getting returned to that assignment because they, uh, um, I always say they survived their tour there. So they sent them back because there was a lot of strict protocols in place because of uh, the religion in the area and some things you could and couldn't do. And if you violated that, I had a couple of friends of mine who inadvertently violated a couple of things, found themselves in Turkish jail for a couple of weeks. And then when they got out, they just shipped them back to the States because they didn't want any other issues with, you know, inadvertent violations. So I said, well, I don't want to be a victim of that. So I'll just get out. So when I got out of the Air Force, I worked a couple of security jobs till I landed a, a job at the Well County Sheriff's Office up in Greeley in 1978. Worked there for probably two and a half years. Um, I moved up pretty quick. I mean, after a year on the road, I'm an acting street sergeant. And then after that, I tested, became an investigator up there, tested again, and was on the list for sergeant. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm not really learning anything because uh, it just wasn't that high volume of calls for service. And I didn't think I was getting the training and experience I needed. So I applied for and was accepted by the War Police Department in 1980. So once you did that, once you did that transfer, were you a sergeant or were, did you transfer over as a as a patrolman? You start all over again because uh, I would, the Sheriff's Department at the time was a small agency. Uh, actually, Aurora kind of was too. When I joined, I think there were maybe 250 officers working then. Um, but Aurora, Denver, um, I think at the time either Colorado Springs Grand Junction had their own police academy where they wanted you trained by their academy staff. So I had to go through another, um, I think it was 12 weeks, which I think they bumped that up even more, but 12 weeks of in-classroom training, three months of uh, field training on the street before I could actually be out on my own. Yeah, interesting. I've I, I spent uh, fourteen years in the army, and three of those were active. And I remember uh, talking to a number of other you know, like recruiters, but even people that were in um, like the Marines and in the Navy, and and the thought of having to uh, re go through some kind of a basic training or something like that, or even officer basic training. I was like. Uh, I'll I'll just stick with the arm, <laughs> you know. Um, especially as as we get a little bit older, I think our tolerance for some of those um, uh, basic type of uh, you know academy 
type trainings are, um, I, I think we kind of lose patience for it. I don't know about you, but I was like, ah, that was, uh, that was rough enough the first time. I don't think I want to do that again. Well, but if, again, if you want it bad enough, you'll go through the, the stuff you have to get to to get it. Um, when I went through uh, the work Academy, I was 25. So I was one of the oldest ones in there. Um, hmm. Everybody else was well, between 21 and 25. But um, yeah, and I mean, I felt like, yeah, I mean, I didn't feel that much older and I'm keeping up with them. It's only a couple of year difference. So I figured hey, I can, if they can put up with it, I can too. Oh, yeah. Well, 25 is nothing. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm saying by the time you're 40 or something. Right. Well, yeah, that would change. be right. Yeah. But I figured, yeah. I figured when I was no, there, I was, this was going to be the last department that I'm on. I'm not going to be going anywhere else from here. Oh, right. Yeah, I think I was 26 when I went through ranger school. And um, by then, you know, I was married and I'd gone through officer basic course and college and everything. And so I'm going through ranger school. And I was, I was definitely one of the older ones. And, I mean, there were a couple of guys that were um, – there was one guy, I think, that was like 42 or 43, and he was, um, I want to say he was a sergeant first class, had probably 18 years in the military, and for some reason, he wanted to be uh, ranger trained, and was everybody was looking at him. I mean, he was a stud, but everybody was looking at him like, what are you thinking, man? So this is, uh, this is brutal. Yeah, but it's probably something he had so, to approve, you know, to... Uh prove to himself I can do this yeah yeah well and he made it so uh good for him he was um uh boy I just remembered as a 26 year old and I was in great shape going in I still lost almost 30 pounds and you know it took me probably two years to fully recover physically so I can't imagine you know some guy that was 40 um what he went through all right well anyway that's uh, enough of our old war stories, right? <laughs> so, um, oh, so what was your um, what was your were you an MP in the Air Force? Yeah, they called it when I first started in. It was uh, uh, Air Police, but then they combined both the security side and the law enforcement side and made it Security Police. And I think they call it something now, something different um, as they transition okay. through. So. Uh, I was on the law enforcement side of the security police. Well, at least you were, were getting a background in it while you while you were serving. Right. Yeah. So, anything that you had to investigate in Turkey? We were kind of limited in what we could do. I mean, to the point where the uh, the off base patrols, the town patrol, even though we had uh, assets outside the, the base or the installation. Um, we weren't allowed to be armed, so I felt kind of odd. You couldn't carry a gun with you, no weapons at all. Um, yeah, I mean, that probably not. I don't think I investigate anything great over there because usually if anything happened of, you know, other than, you know, minor criminal or traffic, uh, OSI would handle the follow-up on that. Well, one thing's for sure. Uh, whoever that airman was that spent a couple of weeks in the Turkish jail, I uh, I hope he learned something from from that because my understanding is that's not some place, especially as an American, you want to be. Yeah, we had a friend of mine that 
said, yeah, we need to go take a, a tour of the jail. I'm going, why? I don't ever expect to be there. He goes, I'm sure these other guys didn't either. So I went down there and it was, it was nasty. So it's like, yeah, I can't wait to get out of here. So I'm sure they've updated, you know, a lot yeah. since then, but I mean, we're talking you know, a number of decades ago. Well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> All right. So you make it back, you get into Aurora PD, you go through the academy and from there, what, what happened? I, uh, I guess I was kind of ambushed. It was, everybody thought it was a joke because if you finished in the top five, I think of your class, then you get the choice of assignments as far as, you know, basically patrol, but days, swings or graves. So I finished in the top five. I got out of the field training program early and I said, okay, I'm ready to pick my shift. And they kind of got a joke out of that because they go, yeah, you're graveyards with middle of the week off. I go, I don't want that, you know, and again, the humor of it. Anyway, so I worked graveyard shift for three years and it was great. I mean, I had a good time, learned a lot, learned at a slower pace. The environment wasn't as frantic as it was on a swing shift. And then in 1985, I went to day shift for a year and then um, about a year and a half because in 1987, uh, I transferred to narcotics. It's not something that I thought about much. I didn't think I'd ever become a narcotics officer, um, but someone suggested, hey, why don't you try this? I said, no, no. So I tried interviewing for traffic, uh, the police area representative program, the DART team, the motorcycle team, and narcotics. And I got shut down by all the other ones except for narcotics. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And it took probably about six months of working narcotics to actually, in my mind, get out of my uniform and work the street that way, as opposed to, you know, constantly seeing something and wanting to intervene. And they go, no, you can't right now. You know, we have other things we're doing. So I lasted narcotics for about six and a half years. And then when I got out, I uh, was back to patrol for, I think, two years before I went to the police area representative program for about four or five years. In the meantime, I'd also worked the front desk, um, basically coordinating the reports that are coming in, uh, taking the reports, doing follow up on the reports. But I did all this because it allowed me time between uh, about nine o'clock at night and one in the morning. So that four hour window, I was able to go out on the street and just do what I want. I mean, I had the freedom to go out, what I call it, go out and play. I mean, I, I wasn't assigned to a team. I wasn't assigned calls. I just went out to dig, dig up whatever I could. So after my time there in 2005, I was promoted to detective. And my choice of assignments were working pro property crimes in District 1 or working fraud. And the person that I was promoted in front of by like a day said, please, I don't, I'll pay you money. I don't want to work fraud. I said, oh, okay. So I took fraud thinking, okay, I can work property crimes. I mean, they're not really that tough. So I went to fraud and the second case I was assigned the first week I was there was a fraud case involving um, the, uh, what was it? It was some scheme where they were 
purchasing these homes in a certain subdivision <clears throat> at the time they were offering basically free money to fix the place up I mean it's all incorporated into the mortgage but the um, people that were doing it were criminals I mean they were basically applying for these loans under different people's names uh, other people one guy it was kind of funny they applied for his loan while he was still in prison they approved it and he bought this half million dollar home while he was still an inmate at one of our facilities so <clears throat> what what year was that? That was uh, 2005. Okay. So that was right in the middle of all those subprime mortgages. Yes. So I'll bet you... Because yeah. it's it, it was... I had a cousin. It wasn't that popular initially, and then all of a sudden it just went rampant. So somebody sees a yeah. loophole and well, takes advantage of it. I, I remember that time... Um, because it was, I, I, I think I was working for a pharmaceutical company at that time. And so I was transferring every couple of years. And so buying and selling my house, my homes as I was transferred was a big deal. And I remember I had a cousin that was really involved with that subprime, uh, mortgages, you know, bundling all right. these, uh, I, but he was saying, first of all, he was making bank. He was making a lot of money and basically he was just going around to different mortgage companies and banks and things and saying, if it, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what their credit is. It doesn't matter what their, uh, financial status is approve it. And we will buy it from you. Wow. And it was insane. They were, they were taking anything because they were immediately wrapping it up and, or their company, was wrapping up hundreds of these and then selling them to the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac folks. And, you know, a lot, a lot of this was Washington DC pushed because, uh, that was basically the time that they were all screaming that everyone deserved a home and, uh, just what a disaster that was. That right? Did. It was for us. I mean, it, it nearly sunk an entire subdivision financially especially when all of a sudden all of them are in foreclosure and the values of their homes have been cut in half because these other ones that are on the market, the same, the same uh, subdivision. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, in 2006, I moved from Spokane, Washington down to uh, Utah and I barely was able to sell my house up in Washington, right? As right before that was hitting. And, but, because of the, everything the way it was, you know, I, I ended up on the buy high, sell low program. Inadvertently, <laughs> so, of course. Yeah. 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 Well, that was one of the worst financial decisions that, um, um, boy, what a disaster, but yeah, a lot of people because of that whole thing, uh, lost their homes and yeah, that was a, that was a bad crash. So, it was kind of interesting because, uh, it, um, we didn't we didn't hear about it because even though the purchases were um, occurring locally within the city of Aurora, the victim was in like this I think the Sacramento California area. So he made a report out there saying, "Hey, I've I've lost all my credit for my uh, construction company. It's just gone. It's evaporated. We don't know what the deal is. Other than it says I own these two houses in Aurora, Colorado." He goes to police, makes a report they ship it to us and I'm going that's odd so I just went out and started knocking on the doors 
of these places he bought. Well, one place was still vacant. The other one, they didn't answer. I don't think they were home, but I looked in through the, the window and it was like immaculately furnished. So I thought, I think I have something here. So I just went and got a bunch of search warrants. And um, I mean, obviously it's, it was a kind of a tidal weight effect because one, one search warrant led to four more, which led to, I think, 40, 50 total when we were done. Uh, there were $25 million in losses. Um, I don't know how many homes went into foreclosure, but there were, we ended up with, I think, around 15 or 20 defendants that we ended up trying in U.S. District Court because it was just that massive. The, the DA's office said, we can't do this. It's too big for us. So I had a contact down at uh, Secret Service. They go, yeah, we'll, we'll take it. Sure enough, they did. Wow. So Secret Service would be involved because they're also part of the IRS? I don't know what the connection was. I just had a connection because I knew the uh, the girl that worked down there. Um, we had met years before and talked about some cases. And uh, I think that's part of their... It, they're not always protecting dignitaries and not always you know doing security stuff. So they have cases that they generate. And I said, well, how about this one? And she took it, ran with it. And it... I don't know how many years from start to finish it was, but it was a case where it just kept going. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. They're not part of the IRS. They're part of Treasury. Yes, Treasury. I thought yeah. IRS was Which too, is but maybe not. How they ended up. <laughs> well, supposedly, I think they've kind of taken over, but um, it's interesting how the Secret Service actually has evolved over time, you know, going from protecting just uh, the funds to also protecting, like you said, right. the president and dignitaries and all sorts of things. But yeah, it it doesn't surprise me during that period, you know, when you were talking about some guy applied for a mortgage from prison, uh, it doesn't surprise me that he was actually approved because like I said, when I was talking to that, my cousin that was in that industry and he was describing what they were doing, um, you know, I, I should have been smarter and I should have seen the writing on the wall and, and knowing anything from Washington, D.C. is going to inspire. Um, it's going to inspire things to go the right direction initially. But there's there any program coming out of Washington, D.C., it gets so big so fast that and especially when you're talking billions and billions of dollars that people are going to find some way to scam it. And the, um, the level of scam just builds and builds and builds. And then, you know, eventually it all crashes. And it, that's, that's just the endless cycle that comes out of Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, the amount of pain that it creates, not just for citizens, but also for detectives like you guys that have to then turn around and investigate all the things that went wrong. Um, it's crazy. So that was a bad time. I, re I remember that uh, um, looking at looking at my house value and thinking, man, if I just waited like two more months, then um, <laughs> I could have picked up something infinitely cheaper. And, you know, then I'd actually have equity in the house instead of uh, instead of uh, losing money on the deal. <laughs> looking at a, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it was. I had a huge amount of equity moving, you know, coming into it and it just evaporated. It was crazy. So anyway, 
Yeah. So, uh, fraud and then what? I worked uh, a little over two years with fraud and then, um, I had the sergeant working homicide visit me a couple of times and said, Hey, how would you like to come up work for me? Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.